In contrast to an exchange-traded fund, which is open-ended, which means it has an almost infinite ability to create new units or to redeem units. And as long as your underlying portfolio is relatively liquid, it doesn't matter how much volume is actually being traded in the ETF, as long as the underlying basket is readily investable. And that's what a good ETF will deliver to you today, whether it's active, whether it's passive, or somewhere in between, as long as you have a relatively liquid underlying portfolio, you're about to hear my conversation with Michael Cook. We get into the weeds on what an ETF is, what you should be looking for when buying an ETF, the correlation between passive investing and the rise in ETFs, and we get his recommendations on books and some of his favorite shows on Netflix. I hope you enjoy. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Information relating to investment approaches or individual investments should not be construed as advice or endorsement. Listeners should seek professional advice for their situation. Welcome to the McKinsey Investments Podcast. My name is Matthew Schnur, and I'm delighted to be here with Michael Cook. Michael runs our ETF business here at McKinsey, and he's been the person that's overseen the growth of the business from zero all the way through $7 billion most recently. Michael, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Matt. It's, uh, it's great to be on the show. I look forward to a wide-ranging conversation. Let's get started with how you got started within the ETF business. Well, I, I started in the asset management business uh, basically out of school in a variety of roles, operations, client service, distribution, product development. And uh, along the way, I had already always had a fascination with capital markets and uh, financial services industry. And although my educational background didn't set me up for a career in finance, I was always intrigued by how financial markets were impacted by everything from politics to changes in the weather to, of course, the macroeconomic backdrop. And, um, you know, I started in the mutual fund industry, uh, the investment fund industry, and I thought that was a, you know, a revolutionary investment vehicle to provide diversification, uh, broad access to investors of all, of all stripes. Um, and when I was introduced to the concept of the exchange-traded fund that blended together the best elements of the traditional mutual fund with exchange tradability, um, a light bulb just went off inside my head and said, this is really, really interesting. It's, it's taking the best elements of the traditional mutual fund, blending them together with the way stocks price and trade, and delivering a solution that investors, large, small, institutional retail can all access simultaneously. So uh, that really piqued my interest in in the industry and the structure, and um, you know the the ETF industry, as you know, Matt, is relatively nascent. It's a young industry; hasn't been around that long. And we'll probably talk a little bit more about the history, but um, its popularity really took off around 15 years ago, and right. that was around the time that I was expanding my horizons into the realm of derivatives and structured mm -hmm. products, and um, I remember it was around 2006, I was sitting on a, a derivative trading desk and we were talking about ways to access certain segments of uh, the U.S. stock market. And in this instance, it was it was financial services companies. Um, and there was an ETF that traded um, a basket of these stocks. But there's also an options market so that you could trade the option against that ETF and indirectly against the index as another way to access 
the asset class. So right. uh, a very interesting nuance of the way the ETF market has grown up and matured and its sheer versatility. Um, so that was, you know, something again that really piqued my interest early on about the, the, the just the, the utility, the versatility, the relevance of exchange traded funds. So that was in 2006 that you're sitting on the derivatives desk and seeing the options. When do you actually make the leap from the derivatives desk to directly involved in the ETF business? Well, in my in my time on that derivatives desk, we actually entered a partnership with um, a new ETF provider in Canada. And um, our, our desk was providing um, two-way trading or market-making capabilities for investors into these new products. So they would act as both buyers and sellers on um, this series of exchange-traded funds. And I wasn't directly involved with that, but uh, somebody on my desk was. And uh, again, that was something that really intrigued me to see how um, the derivative nature of exchange-traded funds. So, of course, ETFs are an investment vehicle listed on exchange. But they derive their value in turn from an underlying basket of security, stocks, bonds, futures. And um, you you have to have real-time access to the value of that underlying basket of securities if you're going to act as a market maker and provide a bid price or an offer price to institutional and retail investors. So that was a a bit of a a peek behind the curtain, if you will, for me to see the mechanics of ETF market making and how market making desks would hedge their risk. Um, in providing two-way liquidity as buyers and sellers of exchange-traded fund units to secondary market investors, be they institutional or retail investors. So again, that's around that 2006 period when the industry was still in its infancy, but really starting to take off in the Canadian market. How large would the industry have been back in 2006? Oh boy, I'm going to say maybe 30 or $40 billion. In total, AUM. right. And where do we um, stand you know, now? We stand at 230. So, right. um, you know, at that time, there were maybe three issuers in Canada. As recently okay. as 2006, um, yeah, there, it was a very small subset of issuers. Um, for a long time, there was only one game in town um, from the time mm-hmm. of the world's first ETF launch in Canada in 1990. And really, for the better part of the first decade of the industry, um, there were a very small handful of players globally, you know, large global asset managers with, um, uh, you know, backgrounds in quantitative and index investment management. Um, it was a very small street um, until about 10 years ago. But uh, yeah, back then, um, there's virtually no competition in the marketplace. Um, and that all changed, of course, as, uh, you know, the industry became more popular, um, more competitors entered the marketplace and it just exploded from there. Yeah, I'm looking forward uh, later in the conversation to talk about where we sit now and the explosion of new issuers, as you've have you stated. Um, one thing I wanted to circle back to, though, was this fairly tremendous growth um, from a very nascent inter- industry as little as 15 years ago to um, more and more robust. Um, we're seeing pretty dramatic net flows going into the industry. Um, in a lot of investors' minds, ETFs are synonymous with passive investment. And clearly, if you look at the nature of the the business, whether it be north or south of the border, uh, there is a significant amount of those assets within passive instruments. How important is that connection between passive investments and ETFs and this idea of sort of the efficient market hypothesis and the, uh, I'll say, increased scrutiny of active management? 
And as a secondary question, why did that passive investment style end up migrating to ETFs as opposed to staying in, say, a mutual fund structure or some other structure? Well, there's a lot to unpack there, Matt, but it's a great question. Um, so let's start with the operational efficiency of something capitalization weighted. And sure. a quick look at history, because the world's first index fund that was available commercially was offered in 1971 by a company called Wells Fargo Nico at the time. And they were okay. one of the world's leading quantitative investment management firms. And they determined the best way to go about passive investment at the time. <clears throat> and you think about it, 1971. So this predates, of course, Excel spreadsheets, the internet, right. a lot of the access to information that we have today, the calculating ability. Um, so in 1971, Wells Fargo and Nico determined that the, way, the best way to invest passively was through an equal weighted exposure to all of the securities okay. in a, 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 a stock universe. In this case, it was the New York Stock Exchange 1500. So 1500 constituents in the universe. And imagine you're equal weighting all of those stocks in a portfolio and you're rebalancing that portfolio every 90 days. That's a huge wow. operational undertaking if you're trying to calculate that and execute it manually. So although the idea made a lot of sense on paper, it was an operational and logistical nightmare. And very quickly, Wells Fargo Nico said, you know what, this is, this is too expensive to trade. It's too complex operationally. There's a simpler way to be a passive investor, a capitalization-weighted approach, which by definition, as you know, Matt, involves allocating the largest share of a portfolio to the largest and most liquid companies. Um, a relatively efficient way to be a passive investor, a much more cost-effective, operationally easy approach to passive investment. Um, and that sort of gave rise to the phenomenon of indexing because you're trying to blend together, of course, <clears throat> in that instance, passive investment, so the low cost nature of it, but also the operational ease uh, of investing passively. And capitalization weighting uh, was the easiest way to go about that. Along the way to going back to about 1960, there was a lot of research about, um, you know, attribution in terms of portfolio and risk management. And, uh, right. you know, a lot of a lot of study was done on the importance of asset allocation and its contribution to risk and secondary, so secondarily to returns. So it became more and more evident that getting the asset mix right was very, very important for institutional and retail investors. And then you could add value through security selection or through tactical investment or market timing. But getting the asset mix right was, was critically important. And in doing so, you wanted efficient exposure to the beta or the systematic risk of a particular asset class, U.S. stocks, Canadian fixed income, et cetera. You wanted efficient exposure to that risk as a bucket in your portfolio. And capitalization weighting um, gave you very efficient access to that systematic risk. ETFs sure. as a delivery vehicle um, were a very efficient means of creating a, a properly diversified portfolio with good asset allocation. So it was a confluence of those factors that gave rise to the earliest generation of exchange-traded funds. But to your point, Matt, um, you know, there's no necessary association between passive investment and exchange-traded funds. It can come in many different forms. The one right. common element that you need to create an exchange-traded fund is a relatively liquid portfolio of underlying securities. And I'll take you back to my example a few minutes ago when we talked about market making. So market makers are tasked with, again, providing 
two-way markets. They have to provide a bid price and they have to provide an offer price to investors in the secondary market to facilitate orderly two-way trading. In doing so, they have to have real-time access to the pricing, to the valuation of the underlying securities held in a portfolio. Otherwise, you've got stale data and investors are going on to exchange and saying, I want to trade right now. But if the market maker in turn doesn't have access to reliable real-time data on the underlying portfolio, you're going to have a mismatch. You're going to have stale pricing. So one element that's critical for an exchange-traded fund is to have an underlying portfolio of securities that are relatively liquid, that are trading quite regularly, and that can provide market makers and by extension investors with a good lens into the real-time fair value of the underlying portfolio. So as long as you have that element, just about anything can be packaged into an exchange-traded fund. Of course, if you're talking about private markets, private equity, private credit, uh, direct real estate as a few examples where you don't have that real-time information, you can't really package that into an exchange-traded fund. So as long as you have a liquid underlying basket, it can match up very well with an exchange-traded product. And capitalization-weighted or passive uh, indices historically have provided that liquidity, that real-time pricing, but they're not the only game in town. You can create a number of different structures, active, strategic beta, index-based, across stocks, bonds, commodities, currencies, anything for which there's relatively instant information and liquidity on the underlying, you can package uh, within an exchange-traded fund. Interesting. So, so you've really hit on the importance of underlying liquidity. Um, maybe to extend on that, and and we can use passive ETFs, maybe a market cap weighted large liquid, call a S and P five hundred tracker or something along those lines. Um, there's a lot of different products on the market that track similar indices. Um, how do you make the selection between these different passive ETFs? I had I had a client once joke with me to say that they simply uh, fire up a spreadsheet and then sort by cost on one uh, column, sort by bid ask on the other column and make a selection from there. Um, I know there's a lot more to it, so maybe you can walk us through that. Yeah, well, there's, a, there's this concept called the, the ubiquity curse, and it goes back to the early days of the ETF industry. Um, you know, the world's earliest ETFs, some of which are still around today, some of which are very large in terms of assets under management and in terms of trading volume. And to your point, those are among the first criteria that investors, both large and small, uh, use in terms of ETF selection. How large is the ETF? How much trading volume is there on the ETF as a measure of liquidity? And what is the headline management fee? And those are all important considerations, but they're certainly not the only. Consideration. Some of the world's first ETFs were designed with what I'd call antiquated structures. Like today, the world's largest ETF with about $300 billion in assets under management is benchmarked to the S&P 500. But the structure is such that dividends are not reinvested into the index. So in uh, dividends paid by the underlying constituents <clears throat> just sort of accrue and sit on the sidelines as cash. And what does that result in? It results in drag because you're not fully invested in the portfolio. So as an investor, if you're seeking S&P 500 exposure, as in this example, you want the the fullest and most efficient replication of the performance of the 500. You don't want a cash drag in your portfolio, but that's unfortunately what the world's largest ETF is delivering to you. Um, 
The S&P 500 too, although we think of it as index-based and capitalization-weighted, is largely the case, but the constituents are still chosen somewhat subjectively. They're chosen by a committee at Standard & Poor's. So there's an element of subjectivity as to what comprises the portfolio. Not a lot, but a little. And that's introducing a certain measure of discretion as to how the S&P 500 is composed. Um, So we think about this and other of the world's large CTFs today as the only game in town. They're large, they're liquid. Um, They may be price leaders, but they're not necessarily. But as the industry has evolved and a lot of research has been done on the subject of index investment, we also know too that you know, there's a lot of front-running activity because every index in the world undergoes a rebalance. Remember I talked about the equal weight New York Stock Exchange 1500 every 90 days rebalancing the portfolio? Well, mm-hmm. just about every index in the world is subject to some sort of rebalancing or reconstitution. And the, the schedule of those events is widely disseminated. It has to be in the public domain. And you get right. these seemingly savvy investors, hedge funds among them, that will pay very close attention to the additions or deletions into an index and will try to front run that activity and trade into or out of those constituents ahead of these rebalances and arbitrage um, the opportunity, if you will. So that creates drag because it creates artificially high or artificially low pricing in those underlying constituents that are going to be added or removed from the benchmark. So there's a different way to go about instant indexing that otherwise preserves the attributes, again, for the investor for whom asset allocation makes a whole lot of sense. They want exposure to the systematic risk of the underlying market. Again, U.S. equity, Canadian equity, Canadian fixed incomes, but they don't want sure. the transactional drag, the noise, the friction of these rebalances. So you think about a slightly off calendar or off schedule rebalancing frequency to avoid that congestion, if you will. And that's one way that indexing continues to evolve um, and deliver you know, the attributes you're looking for, the market beta in this instance, with a high degree of efficiency, liquidity, and cost effectiveness, but without some of the structural flaws inherent in you know, this first generation of indices that populate a lot of the world's ETFs today. Another thing you have to be mindful of is there's, there's many different ways to look at cost. And you touched on a couple of them, management fee, liquidity is measured by bid offer spread, but you know the the efficiency with which you're trading in the underlying portfolio, and again, some of the, the benchmarks that are used today in exchange traded funds were not necessarily intended to be investable. That's what they became, but that's what not right. what they were originally originally designed for. And so, when you're talking about um, taking a concept and putting it into practice and execution through buying and selling of that index, you're subject to the real time cost of trading in that market, the liquidity cost the custodial costs, the commission costs, taxes that are all inherent when you're actually going out and trading in the underlying market. So a lot of the indices that we are familiar with today did not contemplate that when they were originally designed. So now you're seeing another generation of indices that say, okay, we need to also solve for and manage away some of these other friction costs um, of transacting in the underlying market. And there are interesting, creative, and highly efficient and proven ways to go about doing that that again, still deliver the exposure that you're looking for in a cost-effective and liquid wrapper. And you know, it wasn't part of your question, Matt, but one other point I'd like to make that um, sometimes a confusing one for investors is that unlike a stock that trades on exchange and for which there's a finite number of shares outstanding, 
If people aren't trading that stock, it's 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 very hard to get a good execution price if you're a buyer or a seller. In contrast to an exchange traded fund, which is open ended, which means it has an almost infinite ability to create new units or to redeem units. And as long as your underlying portfolio is relatively liquid, it doesn't matter how much volume is actually being traded in the ETF, as long as the underlying basket is readily investable. And that's what a good ETF will deliver to you today, whether it's active, whether it's passive or somewhere in between, as long as you have a relatively liquid underlying portfolio, it does not matter how much volume is traded on the exchange or how much size is posted on the bid price or the offer price for the investor. It's just an important consideration because there's a lot of good products out there that um, appear to be illiquid because there's not a whole lot of trading volume at the ETF level. It doesn't mean they're bad investments. It doesn't mean, in fact, that they are illiquid. Um, And with one or two extra steps of analyzing that ETF, its trading behavior, and getting a good sense of what the natural underlying spread um, uh, should be, and or if you're a financial advisor, talking to your market-making desk to get a better sense of what uh, you know, what where you can get execution and in what size, you can really find some very interesting products in the marketplace that offer you the same efficiency or the same liquidity as some of the world's oldest and largest ETFs. So it sounds like based on that, you're you would say cost indeed extremely important when you're evaluating ETFs. Uh, tracking error index construction, probably two uh, items that are mostly overlooked by investors. And liquidity needs to be thought of based on the underlying. Uh, the bid ask is actually a bit of a uh, a bogey, a bit of a um, something that you shouldn't pay a lot of attention to. Is that is that fair when you're selecting an ETF? Yeah, and I think another important point, Matt, given for us as Canadian investors, of course, we have um, you know a lot of choice in terms of Canadian listed ETFs, but we also have access sure. to U.S. listed ETFs, which right. themselves are tend to be large tend to be quite liquid and tend to be fairly cost effective. We've got a lot of that choice now available on the Canadian market. So, um, you know, the Canadian market has really matured and provided a lot of the same choices now that are available in the U.S. listed uh, market, but with some important and sometimes nuanced differences. Um, You could be subject to withholding tax as uh, a holder of U.S. listed ETF in a Canadian portfolio. Now, it depends on the type of investment account. Um, but you could be subject to withholding tax that you're not even aware of. Um, right. A lot of the indices that populate even Canadian listed ETFs today, like the S&P 500 or the MSCI EFI, were originally designed with the needs and the expectations of the U.S. investor in mind. We're Canadian investors. Right. So we're trying to optimize for our needs, You know, considerations, like I said, tax, but also currency. Mm-hmm. But we want to be thinking about what is best for me as a Canadian investor? How do I get the most beneficial investment experience? And increasingly, that is found in the form of Canadian listed ETFs, where a thoughtful issuer will take into account the needs, the considerations of the Canadian investor in a fashion that many U.S. issuers that operate in Canada do not, and certainly U.S. listed ETFs do not. So it's another important consideration if you're truly going to evaluate the best ETFs for you as a Canadian investor, you want to be mindful of all those considerations. And we can't do a a really deep dive on some of these technical elements today, but we've done a lot of thinking about this and created our products trying to solve for the needs of the investor in Canada. Makes sense. Um, 
being based in Canada, of course, and Mackenzie being Canadian focused, we'll, we'll come to market with that in mind. Um, you referenced uh, building products. Uh, you've been very busy uh, over over the summer, particularly in light of COVID. I think uh, people would be fairly surprised to know that you're coming to market with 15 new ETFs uh, throughout the, the balance of the year. Um, that's fairly ambitious. Uh, I'd love for you to to walk through the overall thought in uh, in the product offerings that we are coming to market with, uh, and then secondarily, how you view a shelf of an ETF provider and and what in the long term you'd like the shelf to look like. Sure. So um, to your first question, thinking about product development and. You know, going back now to uh, April of 2016, so four and a half years ago when we launched our first um, McKenzie ETFs, and we took some of our best in breed active capabilities in fixed income and um, um, embedded those capabilities in our first suite of exchange traded funds. Uh, had a lot of success with that. I think McKenzie has uh, one of the best, if not the best, fixed income uh, teams in Canada. Uh, the performance and track record of those products certainly bears that out. Um, but along the way, you, you see and you, you hear from investors, both institutional and retail, what kinds of exposures they're looking for uh, in an exchange-traded fund. Some are looking for that value out of active management. Some are looking for you know, efficient tools uh, to create properly diversified portfolios and an appropriate asset mix in a portfolio and going back to my earlier point about how efficient ETFs can be for asset allocation and portfolio construction, uh, we see other investor segments that say, I just want the building blocks. Um, I'm a discretionary advisor or I'm a savvy investor and I wanna to put together the components in my portfolio and I'll pick and choose these different exposures to achieve the objectives of different investors You know, that have different tolerances for risk or timelines for investment. So. Um, ETFs give you a lot of precision um, and versatility in terms of their application. And we saw that both with portfolio management teams um, at McKenzie. We've seen it with uh, financial advisors. We've seen it with individual investors that say there's so many different applications for exchange traded funds. I just want choice um, because my needs are different from every other investor. So we quickly learned that to offer um, a greater breadth of product would, would really help our relevance in the Canadian marketplace um, across the different, you know, the, the different investor segments that we interface with. Um, so we evolved from actively managed ETFs to uh, what I call strategic beta. Um, so these are still index tracking products, but they, they take a different approach to the construction, the composition, the weighting of constituent securities in a portfolio. And again, it's probably a subject for an entire podcast, but strategic beta blends together elements of both active and index investment. And we have a suite sure. of, uh, of, of of these solutions um, that are equity-based that serve to improve the diversification of a portfolio um, using a patented and pioneering approach by a, a Paris-based company called Tobam and its maximum diversification index, which is the underlying exposure for those six equity products. Most recently, We've added what I'll call traditional index solutions. So, uh, you know, capitalization weighted exposures to U.S. large cap stocks or Canadian short term bonds or international equities or emerging market debt as a few examples. And these are very efficient building blocks, again, to help investors achieve better diversification, improved asset allocation in a portfolio. And they include institutional investors, 
retail investors, all points in between. And as we continue to layer upon, you know, the composition of our, our product suite, we said, well, maybe there's an opportunity for us to, to offer investors the best of all of these worlds. So leverage our capabilities as an active manager with now, you know, almost a 53 year history in the Canadian marketplace to use some of our building blocks as components to build balanced portfolios, 60, 40, 80, 20, uh, 40, 60 that are exchange traded funds in and of themselves with a layer of active management at the top fund level, and then comprised of these underlying building blocks that provide very different, very efficient and, and diversified exposure to the underlying segments of, uh, of financial markets. And that's precisely what we've packaged together with a suite of these asset allocation solutions, three of which are balanced and one of which is all fixed income, but all of which are actively managed and use and choose from those underlying building blocks. So as the ETF market continues to evolve, we see more and more financial advisors, investors uh, joining the ETF ecosystem. And increasingly, they want more choice, more differentiation because their needs are all different as investors. So whether they want to choose from the individual building blocks or have something that is packaged and unitized for them, uh, we want to offer that breadth of choice with our product suite. So central to um, the upcoming suite of, of new offerings that we're bringing to market are those asset allocation solutions that bundle together these different exposures. And to support that, to support that, we added a few different uh, building blocks, um, uh, U.S. aggregate bonds, as an example, as well as um, global aggregate bonds, ex-North America, as necessary components of those new asset allocation products, but also as standalone offerings that fill an important gap in the Canadian marketplace. So at the end of the day, these balanced solutions are going to give you single ticket, diversified, cost-effective liquid exposure to Canadian, U.S., international, and emerging market equity, as well as Canadian, U.S., international, and emerging market fixed income, all in a single ticket. So a very, very efficient way for an investor to achieve virtually instant global diversification in a portfolio. And depending on your timeline for investment or your tolerance for risk, you have several options as to how you're going to achieve that exposure. We also see you know, the growing need among investors. And it's interesting, Matt, because if we look at the last 10, I'll say 12 years, and you know the, the return patterns we've seen in capital markets, there's some obvious leaders you know, like U.S. large cap equity which has been far and away in terms of both return and risk, um, the darling asset class of investors for a long, long time. But we're also trying to take a forward-looking view. What do the next five to 10 years hold for uh, the investment market? What kind of assumptions can we make about capital markets and return and risk expectations going forward? And the next 10 years could look very different from the preceding 10 or 12. So we're also trying to be forward-looking and saying, how do we go about delivering relevance and diversification to investors thinking about the future? And as much as we want to pay attention to what's worked in the past, we also want to be mindful of asset classes that might be poised to outperform going forward. Um, so we've also added in there some and are thinking further about other exposures that might uh, populate future ETF product development for McKenzie so we can get out in front of those trends and provide relevance to investors as they look to the future and how to build better portfolios, not necessarily based on what's worked over the last 10 years, but what's going to work over the next 5, 10, 20 years. So a lot of that has informed our product development decision-making. 
And then finally, Matt, with the the success that we're enjoying, you mentioned you touched on it, seven plus billion dollars in AUM uh, retail institutional investors. We're now the sixth largest issuer in Canada. What that all translates into is a lot more prominence and profile for our ETF shelf and more and more uh, reverse inquiries, if you will, coming from our constituent client uh, segments asking for different types of product solutions. And there's no better way to inform your product development than hearing feedback from your clients as to the types of solutions they'd like to see. So, um, you know, that's given us a a much better lens into product development decision making. And, uh, you know, that allows us to be more relevant, more precise, more competitive with the solutions that we're bringing to market. Interesting. Uh, Makes a lot of sense. Um, I particularly uh, like the idea of uh, looking forward um, and, and trying to understand what will be uh, popular going forward. I suppose that fulfills two things. Number one, you're you're going where the puck is going, as the Wayne Gretzky quote um, uh, uh, says. But additionally, it's a more rarefied space. Um, there's a lot of uh, ETFs that have been launched uh, in segments that have been particularly hot. And along with those ETFs, tickers that have been launched, there's been a proliferation of ETF providers as well. Um, Within Canada, we've seen that probably over the last, say, five years, uh, a lot of players coming to market. you know, maybe maybe viewing the, the both the proliferation of players and just the general growth of the ETF market when you're looking forward five years. Uh, number one, can the market support as many players are, as are there? And uh, and number two, uh, do you expect the growth to continue uh, at the same pace that it has uh, within the ETF market? Yeah, that's a great question, Matt. Um, like in any industry, um, success fosters a lot of new competition. Uh, sure. New issuers, in this case, um, a lot of new product coming to market, trying to latch onto that headline industry growth that we're seeing, not just in Canada, but all around the world. You know, global assets are roughly $6.4 trillion today um, mm-hmm. in ETFs. Uh, in Canada, we touched on a $230 billion. Through the month of July, we've already established a calendar year record for ETF flows of $28.6 billion, eclipsing 2019 full calendar year flows. Um, So we're running out of superlatives to describe the headline growth, but it belies the fact that, you know, under the hood, um, the competition is fierce and the the successful providers and issuers are are very, very concentrated. Um, You know, there are exceptions to that where new providers pop up and, you know, capture a niche or, or capitalize on a first mover opportunity. Um, but, right. you know, by and large, it's the large and established providers that have a longstanding track record of investment management success, of which, of course, McKenzie is one. Um, you know, strong brands, you know, strong reputationally, good track records, uh, known for their capabilities. Uh, that's another characteristic of the issuers that are, are performing well. And then having, as I said a few minutes ago, that breadth of product. So investors have uh, a lot of choice on your product shelf. And you check all the boxes in terms of the competitiveness of your products, uh, assets under management, trading volume, cost effectiveness, um, mindful of total cost of ownership, mindful of, again, optimizing for um, the best possible investment experience of the Canadian investor. So those are some of the elements that I see as common across uh, the winning providers in the Canadian market. You touched on it, Matt, though, a lot of newer entrants have crowded in, particularly in the last five years. Um, they don't have very thoughtful, um, coherent strategies that grow their business. Um, 
They've they've tried to latch on to themes um, and they may win in the short term, but it doesn't necessarily mean they're set up for success long term. Um, you know, sure. McKenzie can take great pride in its 53 year history in Canada. Great track record, um, strong history of investment management capability, strong brand, brand equity, you know, Canadian owned, Canadian operated, catering to the needs primarily of Canadian financial advisors and their investors, all those criteria. So we're in it for the long haul here. We're the sixth largest provider um, with just more than four and a half years in the Canadian ETF market. Um, you know, there's some popular U.S. issuers um, that are are uh, very high in the Canadian ETF lead table, but that doesn't mean it's always going to be the case. You know, in any emerging industry, uh, market leadership can be fluid. It can be subject to change. And it's really the providers that have that long term commitment and are mindful of the needs of the local investor base, the local advisor base. They are going to win the day. And we feel that McKenzie's really well positioned to do that. Uh, of the 35 odd issuers that um, operate in Canada today, um, I don't think a lot of them are going to exist in the next five years. Again, looking at the concentration of flows, the concentration of assets, sure. and perhaps an acceleration of some of those themes with the recent crisis, um, it becomes harder and harder to keep the lights on if you're operating subscale, unprofitable exchange traded funds. So eventually, right. you're going to see more and more consolidation, probably. Um, an uptick in ETF closures. Again, McKenzie, um, with its prominence in the Canadian marketplace, um, is committed to, you know, building its ETF footprint, um, you know, with a thoughtful process to product development and product sustainability, to ensuring that you have, you know, products that are that are um, viable, that are healthy, that are relevant to investors. And we try with every single product that we bring to market to be thoughtful, to be forward-looking, and to to ensure that we're going to bring successful products to market, because if our clients succeed, we're going to succeed. Um, and I'm not sure a lot of other ETF issuers can make that claim. Uh, we'll see, but we're very proud of our position in the industry. We're proud of the relevance of our entire product suite, and we're committed to ensuring that uh, both our current roster of products, as well as anything future we undertake, has relevance and uh, utility for uh, all Canadian investors. Great. Um, and just just to hit on the the uh, continued growth of ETFs, you've mentioned uh, already we've reached a record in 2020 as far as flow goes. Um, the U.S. in many cases in the financial industry, if we look at um, either product development, if we look at um, some of the larger trends, I've heard often repeated that Canada follows the U.S. by 10 years. Um, you know, do you, are you seeing the same sort of trends in ETFs uh, migrating north of the border, or have there been fairly large um, uh, divergence? Well, the one thing about the U.S. ETF industry is that um, you know you touched on it. We usually use the rule of ten to talk about the relative size of the U.S. as a country, as an economy, et cetera. Sure. Um, but in the case of the ETF industry and the exchange traded nature of these products, you get investors from all over the world accessing. In this case, the U.S. ETF market. You know, you have European pension funds, you have uh, sovereign wealth funds, um, other investors from all over the world, retail investors um, that are all um, joining in, in participating in the, the growth of the U.S. ETF market. So it's disproportionately larger than Canada as a result. I think largely as a result of that, many international investors that access. U.S. listed ETFs. They do the same to a degree in Canada, but we're relatively smaller. Um, sure. And as such, the U.S. is a very popular destination for international investors and in exchange traded funds. 
But having said that, we're exhibiting many of the same growth patterns. Um, the last data I looked at, we showed about a 20% um, compound annual growth rate in the Canadian ETF industry. Um, that's in line with the U.S. market. In some periods, it's actually a faster or accelerated growth pace than we see in the U.S. So we are a little bit behind the curve. If we look at um, ratios such as um, size of the mutual fund industry relative to the ETF industry. Now, in both markets, the, ETF, the mutual fund industry is still quite vibrant, quite thriving. Um, but for similar reasons that I articulated a few minutes ago about international investors, ETFs are becoming a substitute for other types of investment vehicles. So, for example, the cash markets, the, the stock market itself, the bond market, where in the past investors may have picked and chosen um, individual stocks, individual bonds are now using ETFs in lieu of that. Um, the derivatives market, like futures, for example, ETFs have become a very popular substitute for stock futures, bond futures, commodity futures. So it's not necessarily that we're pulling money away from traditional investment funds as much as it is investors are seeing the utility, the relevance of ETFs um, in lieu of other types of investment vehicles. And that trend is accelerating in the U.S. We're starting to see it in the Canadian marketplace. And the penetration rate as a result of that is starting to accelerate uh, in Canada as it is in other geographies. So um, we're showing a similar trajectory uh, to the U.S. and global trends. And in many ways, Canada can lay claim to being a leader. I mean, we did touch on the fact that we launched the world's first ETF in 1990. Uh, we've done a lot of innovative things, though, in the last 30 years in terms of ETF product development, ETF innovation. You know, another popular phenomenon in Canada is um, um, top investment funds like mutual funds that in turn allocate to exchange traded funds in whole or in part. So you might have a mutual fund uh, manager, for example, that has a cash position in a portfolio. They want to put that cash to work for a period while they're undertaking their you know, security selection process. They don't want to get left behind in a rising market, so they deploy that cash using an exchange traded fund. In other instances, as we discussed a few minutes ago, um, for asset allocation purposes, the mutual fund manager says, this is a very efficient way for me to get diversified exposure to a particular market, we'll say emerging market debt, for example, for which I don't have a particular proficiency, but I want single ticket diversified access, efficient access, ETF serves that purpose for me. Many, many different applications that we're starting to see. I talked about you know, these fund to fund products like the new suite of balance ETFs that are coming to market from McKenzie. Well, mutual funds and ETFs now are increasingly offering that as an option for investors. They are in turn comprised of ETFs as the underlying building blocks in a portfolio. So there still might be a layer of active management at the top fund level in terms of asset allocation or tactical management or other considerations, but they're using exchange traded funds as the underlying building blocks. So that's a, a concept and a trend that we've seen Canada establish itself as a market leader, these fund to fund concepts, uh, giving investors different choices, different ways to expose, expose or achieve the exposure of exchange traded funds, either directly or indirectly um, through the creativity and um, the product development that we're seeing in the Canadian market. So um, certainly Canada is a relatively smaller provider, but is showing a very impressive growth or, or market rather, but showing an impressive growth trajectory and is itself a leader in, in terms of product innovation and product application in many respects.
So we always conclude these podcasts by getting a series of recommendations from you. Let's start off with some of your favorite books. Yeah, I've got a few that I've picked up recently, Matt. And one thing they share in common is to sort of um, um, looking at unconventional wisdom. So, you know, one of my favorites is Moneyball. And many of us are familiar sure. with the book, with the movie, but nobody's familiar with the subtitle of that particular book and movie, The Art of Winning an Unfair Game. So going deep into challenging conventional wisdom as it relates to the mindset of players, coaches, scouts, managers about, you know, what drives success in the game of baseball, stolen bases, RBIs, batting averages. But these are all sort of um, relics of the 19th century in terms of how we evaluate the quality of baseball teams or baseball players. So thinking has evolved a lot. And whether or not you're a sports fan, there are so many learnings, so many lessons as to how you can sure. look at industry, competitiveness, investment management through a different lens and actually win what can sometimes be seen as an unfair game. So um, it's a sports book, but it's a, it's a great read for investors of all stripes. Um, another is a book called Blue Ocean, um, which in contrast to the red ocean concept of fierce competition. So the, the name comes from this concept of red ocean, and it's like a... a, a a sea of, of infested with sharks and you throw some bait into the water and the, the, the water fills with blood, hence the red ocean, sure. um, highly competitive industry segment uh, where it's really tough to get ahead. It's, it's tough to differentiate yourself. So blue ocean is a deep dive in how um, you can um, create uncontested markets of demand for your product or service. You can make the competition irrelevant. Um, you can create, and capture new demand from your target market. Um, you can break the, the historical link or the trade-off between value and cost. Uh, you can pro, you know, provide just that element of differentiation and create new markets for your product or service. I think that's another very intriguing uh, read and approach more directly to um, competition in different industry segments. And whatever stripes you wear, um, in your profession, I think there's a lot of interesting learning to be taken from uh, a book. So both are sort of an unconventional approach to um, baseball in one example, to industry in another. I would suggest that right. it's sort of like the mindset that many portfolio managers at McKenzie choose, you know, contrarians that look at things a little bit differently, um, that sure. take on a little bit more research due diligence to identify, you know, great buys, sells, uh, and that's how they win in what can sometimes be seen as an unfair game, a hyper-competitive game, an efficient one. Well, I, I just think there's a there's a lot of parallels there to how you can compete, how you can think differently about winning in any game. Great. I, would, I look forward. I'll pick up uh, Blue Ocean. I haven't heard of that. So uh, thanks for the recommendation. So it's September 1st right now when we're recording this podcast. We've been in uh, the post-COVID world since March, which really has meant a lot more time at home and a lot of Netflix. Um, Michael, what are some of the uh, some of the favorite uh, TV series that you've seen over the past couple of months? Well, the first one will probably be familiar to some, but uh, Billions uh, is one of my favorites. Oh, sure. um, and it's the, uh, it's the struggle between... Um, uh, a former Wall Street trader who set up a hedge fund in you know the suburbs of New York um, has turned himself into a billionaire. Um, 
but has done so through some questionable practices. And his um, uh, his primary opponent in this series is uh, the Attorney General for the Southern, uh, Southern District of New York, um, and they're you know almost daily head-to-head struggles of right and wrong. Um, you know, the regulators trying to clamp down on this guy and his, his malfeasance as a trader and as a hedge fund manager. Um, and for anybody that's in the financial industry, it's it's just must-see TV. Um, it's, it's really well-written, great acting, great storylines. Another one more recently has been um, The Crown, um, which chronicles um, Queen Elizabeth and her rise to the monarchy going back to the early sure. 1950s. Um, the period just before that, her uh, before that she became the queen, and then really the timeline right up to current day. Um, and among the things that are interesting is just a look behind the scenes of what the British monarchy looks like, but also um, they're, they're spanning a period of, of, you know, in the end, close to 70 years, probably more. So they actually changed the cast to reflect, you know, the the, the aging process of, uh, of the cast members. Um, and I was a little bit skeptical at first, but they did a pretty good job of transitioning um, from a young Queen Elizabeth to a middle-aged Queen Elizabeth. And I haven't seen the most recent episodes, but um, it's it's really good TV. And, you know, it's a great, uh, uh, a great historical overview of the British monarchy, the politics, the, the natural family dysfunction that every family goes through, um, the, you know, from, you know, the, the, the Second World War um, through... You know, many historical periods that are pulled out of as a backdrop to the show from the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s and beyond. So those are two that are really interesting. And then most recently, I discovered Ozark, um, which oh, sure. is uh, yeah. I'm only I'm only through the first couple of episodes of Ozark. But um, uh, again, it's a Chicago based um, uh, brokerage boutique uh, that finds itself mixed up with some. Uh, South American um, drug runners, and uh, it leads to a really bad outcome where uh, people die, the brokerage shuts down, uh, the family has to uproot itself and reinvent itself in the, the, the southwestern uh, U.S. Uh, but again, really well acted, a, a different storyline. So if you're looking for uh, um, a, a bit of an escape, so to speak, um, it's I'm only two episodes in, but it's it's really compelling TV as well. Great. Well, Michael, thank you for being so generous with your time. I really appreciate it. And congrats on the success of the ETF business. Thank you, Matt. It's been great to spend time with you. The content of this podcast, including facts, views, opinions, and recommendations, is not to be used or construed as investment advice and is not an offer or an invitation to buy or sell any security. The content of this podcast should not be relied upon for any purposes, and McKenzie Financial Corporation is not responsible for any reliance upon it. This podcast includes forward-looking information that reflects our current expectations or forecasts of future events. Forward-looking information is subject to risks, uncertainties, and assumptions that could cause actual results to differ materially from those expressed herein. Our views are subject to change based on market conditions. Commissions, trailing commissions, management fees, and expenses may be associated with mutual fund investments. Please read the fund facts and prospectus before investing. The indicated rates of returns are historical annual compounded total returns, including changes to unit values and reinvestment of all dividends or distributions and does not take into account sales, redemptions, distribution, or optional charges or income taxes payable by any security holder that would have reduced returns. 